Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement Podcast where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, just anyone that has an amazing story that's out there making it happen. Today we are with Geraldine Cox who is one of the most inspiring people I've ever come across in my life. Geraldine is the founder of Sunrise Cambodia which is providing housing, schooling and support for children in Cambodia. Cambodia. She's been doing that for nearly 30 years. Her story is an incredible story. She's been on an amazing journey living all over the world. She has some very confronting stories to tell about her journey with Sunrise Cambodia as well and so many other amazing parts of that journey as well. Um, She is someone that's really doing amazing things. She's out there speaking. She's been on 60 Minutes. This is your life. Australia story four corners she's spoken in nearly every forum around the world and uh, she's still at age 75 giving her absolute best for sunrise cambodia so sit back enjoy this week's episode with geraldine cox Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, philanthropists, people that are making a difference in the world. And I'm very excited today. We have the founder of Sunrise Cambodia, Geraldine Cox, which provides education, housing, and support for people in need in Cambodia, a lot of children there. Um, Just a bit about Geraldine's background. She's a regular on all sorts of different TV shows from Australian Stories, 60 Minutes, This Is Your Life. She's been on Four Corners. She's spoken all around the world um, in all sorts of different forums. Uh, She has a book, Home Is Where Your Heart Is. In 2001, she was an Order of Australia. There's literally pages and pages of amazing stories of achievements and awards that Geraldine's done. And, And today we invite her on to share share a bit about her journey, which is an extremely long and colourful journey, and also uh, explain about her last 27 years uh, working in Cambodia with her foundation, Sunrise Cambodia. So welcome to the show, Geraldine. Hi, Craig. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. So look, I mean, I just gave you a little intro to the show um, now, uh, it'd be great if you could just share a bit about your background and story to put some context to, you know, your journey, which has been such an inspiring journey. And then, you know, I'd love to be able to ask a few questions about that. Just to put everybody in the picture, I'd like to tell you about uh, my early life in Australia. Um, I was born at the foothills of Adelaide to a blue collar milkman as a, fa- as a father who was very, very proud of his blue collar uh, background. He was a real yakker overalls kind of guy. And um, we always had everything we wanted and we knew we were loved. We weren't rich. Um, We were sort of middle class and um, I never wanted for a thing. And this is why when I see the kids that come to us, I feel so blessed to have had the the honor to be brought up in a loving home and a loving background. So uh, I don't have anything to complain about my early life. No traumas, everything was warm and fuzzy and lovey. Um, But at the age of 23, I was going out with a a Greek guy. We were very much in love. We wanted to get married. 
but he wanted to make sure that I could have children. So put me in hospital. And the long and the short of it was that um, I was told I could not have kids. I had blocked fallopian tubes. And in those days, there was not much you could do. So I pretty much got dumped at the altar. And I was devastated, as you would be. So I decided that if I couldn't be a wife and a mother, I would join foreign affairs, the government, and have a life traveling the world at taxpayers' expense, I suppose, and um, swanning around in embassies in black cocktail dresses and getting seduced by James Bond types. That's how I thought it would be. <laughs> but it was anything but that. In, in 1970, I was posted to Cambodia just at the beginning of the Vietnam War, and glamorous it was not. Uh, we had perfumes, rocket attacks, food shortages. Um, it's a war zone. And I grew a lot at that time. We are so lucky in Australia to be brought up in a country that's never been occupied by a foreign force, that we've never had a war on our land. And it made me realise again how lucky I was to be an Australian. But everything in Cambodia had a huge impact me impact on me. I loved everything about it. I loved the food, the music, the poetry, the people, the climate even. And um, I knew that I would come back there one day. Um, but I left um, before, the, before the Pol Pot period. And uh, during my posting, um, I was able to adopt um, a little Cambodian girl named Lisa Devi. Her actual name from the orphanage was number 67. So I changed that to Lisa Devi. And um, she had been found by soldiers in a cardboard box with dogs closing in on her, trying to eat her. They bit her arm because she was so weak. And the soldiers took her to an orphanage where I had children on the weekend come out to my house where I'd give them fried rice and fruit and a swim in the pool and generally did my best to give them something special during, during the week. Um, but the people at the orphanage knew I was looking for a healthy child so when Liz came in, they called me and said, we just got to get in on the street to come in. So I went in and I looked at this little, beautiful little girl. Um, she had very long curly hair and it was all sticking to her face. And I literally heard bells go off and I knew that this was the one for me. Um, but as fate would have it, and unhappily, after a couple of months, it, I... I realized she didn't hear anything much. There were rocket attacks going off, glasses breaking in the house, and she'd sleep all through it. So I took her to um, an American doctor that serviced the um, American embassy people here. And he took one look at her and he said, why would you want to adopt a cerebral palsy child? And I didn't even know what cerebral palsy meant. I said, no, she's not from cerebral palsy. She's Cambodian. I thought cerebral palsy was like Sri Lanka or something like that. <laughs> and then he told me, She's profoundly deaf, mentally retarded, which was the word they used in those days. Uh, wouldn't speak, wouldn't work, walk, um, couldn't be educated. She had autism, epilepsy, profoundly deaf, crippled, um, and autism. There was nothing right with her. She could see that was it. And I refused to accept all this. I was in denial and I thought, well, if I can get her to Australia, uh, I'll get her fixed. I didn't realize that brain damage was permanent in those days. So it was a traumatic journey. Um, I got her back to Australia in the end, um, but it was clear I couldn't um, take care of my story. So I was to uh, the Philippines with my 
And it got so bad with her um, when she was seven, she was having grand mal seizures with her epilepsy or her sugar diabetes every day. And she had to be taken to emergency all the time. And the embassy was getting a bit fed up with this. And they finally said to me, well, Geraldine, you've got to decide if you want to be with your daughter or your career. So I knew that um, I had to make other arrangements for her. So I was able to get her in care in Australia where she's um, had a wonderful life, if you can call it that. Um, she's kept clean and fed and amused, um, but she doesn't recognize anybody as a, as a person. Um, a chair is no different to a person. Um, she'll be 47 this year and she's still in diapers and so on. And people say to me, Geraldine, what was the point of Lisa's life? Waste of bloody space. And I say to her, 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 her journey was to send me back to Cambodia because when I realised I couldn't care for her in the way I wanted um, and I came back to Cambodia and saw so many kids that looked like her, I knew this was, was something that I could do that Lisa pointed me towards. So I'm very grateful to her for that. Um, after the Philippines, I was then posted to Bangkok after I'd put Lisa in care. And um, uh, I've got to say, my three years in Bangkok's a bit of a blur. Um, I went from um, a loving family life, caring for my daughter, to a life of a single person, again, in one of the most sexual ca capitals of the world. And I was um, really not in a good space. And a lot of people heal their wounds with alcohol or drugs, but with me, it was sex that got me through the day. And um, the embassy wasn't terribly thrilled about all of this. And I was finally told um, I would be um, cross-posted to Iran. Um, they thought I couldn't get into any trouble in Iran. Um, it was just after the hostage taking and during the Iran-Iraq war. Um, but they were wrong. And I was posted there for a one-year hardship post and I'd never had such a wonderful time in my life. The Iranian men loved plump redheads, so you could imagine um, I, I had a, a fabulous social life. And uh, while there, I worked for three ambassadors. Um, I outlasted each ambassador. Um, and towards the end of my posting, I met a wonderful guy called Mahmoud, educated, sensitive, poetic, romantic, to die for handsome, and we fell in love. But um, it was a strange relationship because in Iran, you couldn't have um, a date. You couldn't be seen in a restaurant. You certainly couldn't have anybody stay in your house overnight without being arrested and whipped. So um, uh, to have a normal relationship, uh, we had to get married. But with my Jewish background, the mullahs wouldn't marry us. And the rabbis wouldn't marry us because he was a Shiite Muslim, so we were stuck. And then one day he came to my house on a Saturday and he said, Geraldine, give me your passport. And I said, I don't give anybody my passport. What do you want it for? And he said, I've found a blind, corrupt mullah that for $100 will give us a marriage certificate. And so we're getting married today. And I said, I can't get married today. I haven't had my hair done. I haven't got a dress. And I can't. He said, no, you don't even have to come, Geraldine. He just wants, I just wants to, you to sign this paper to say that, that you convert to Islam and we'll get a legal wedding certificate. So um, I went ahead with that. And I said to him, um, look, I know when people convert to Islam, the mullah gives them a new name, a new Muslim name. 
So I said, can you be sure he gets me a beautiful name like Soraya or Shezerat or one of these beautiful names? And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, he came back from um, getting the certificate and I had a lovely romantic dinner and candlelight and champagne and everything. And I said during dinner, oh, I said, what's my, what's my Islamic name? And he kept on avoiding me. And I said, what is it? And he said, oh, Geraldine, it's Fatima. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. Fatima is in Iran's, uh, the, the nickname for Fatima is Fatty, which I was at the time. I was a big girl. And I had to go the rest of my posting being called Fatty all the time. So I thought this doesn't all go well for the wedding. Um, so anyway, um, we came to Adelaide from Iran and we had a proper uh, w wedding ceremony. And after that, um, I was posted with him to Washington DC to work in the political section. And foreign affairs worked out that Mahmoud had an Iranian passport and it, it, it couldn't happen that he could come accompanied uh, with me um, with a top secret of a security clearance. So he was actually given an official Australian passport within a week. So he was very, very lucky. Um, so I went to work in Washington and out of all my postings, war zones and everything, Washington was the most dangerous place I ever lived in. And it was not a happy time for me. Mumwood found it hard getting work and he, he turned to drink and he was a, a real alcoholic bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label a day um, before he had um, tequila in his coffee in the morning. But to his credit, he was never abusive to me verbally or physically. He was just asleep most of the time. Anyway, after my three years in Washington, we came back um, to Australia and I decided to resign from public service and get a job in the corporate sector with Chase Manhattan Bank and see, see what life was like there. And I had a wonderful job. I had a rented um, garden apartment right, right on the shores of Cremorne Point with the harbour. Um, I had catered for dinner parties. I wore $600 suits to work, $200 shoes. I even thought that um, you weren't a real woman unless you had a mink coat. So I went to the Fourier's and I couldn't decide whether to get the black one or the gray one. So I got both of them. So that's just how materialistic my life was at the time. I never donated to save the children or world vision. I even avoided giving money to the Salvation Army or the Red Cross. I was just, just concerned about number one, numero uno, me. Um, and I'd have these cocktail parties at my house and so on, and I'd go to bed at night, you know, having had a wonderful time, but I'd lie there and I'd think, well, is that all there is, George? And it's like the old Peggy Lee song, is that all there is? And I knew I had a, a, a huge hole in my heart, didn't quite know how to fill it. Um, and then after we got divorced um, in 1990, I took a first class holiday around the world. And the first place I went back to was Cambodia because I badly wanted to go to Angkor Wat, which was something I couldn't do during the war. And when I came back, I went to a few orphanages and I could see that nothing had changed much for the children of Cambodia and I wanted to do something about it but didn't know where to start. Came back to Sydney and a girlfriend of mine who worked with me in the embassy during the war said, why don't we, we, we set up a charity, Geraldine, and do something? So we did. With her help and her husband's help, we did. Um, so in 1993, um, I came back here um, and found these children, 24 of them, in a refugee camp orphanage. 
Um, and when I stood there with these 24 children, um, it was like a bullet in the brain. It was like, this is Geraldine, what your life is going to be. This is why you never had children. And it was just so clear to me that this was my path. So I went back to um, Sydney, um, opened up a charity, Australia Cambodia Foundation, started raising money among family and friends, sending it back to Cambodia. And it pretty much consumed my life to the point that my work suffered because I was always getting faxes and phone calls from Cambodia. And in the end, I got fired three weeks before my 50th birthday. And um, this was a real shock to me. Um, I'd never saved a penny while I was working. And I was going to write a book called Fat, Fired, 50 and Fucked, because that's really what I was. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, what am I going to do with my life? And my heart took me back to Cambodia. Um, the first prime minister, when I got fired, was Prince Norodom Runnerid, who was the son of King Sihanouk. And again, as fate would have it, during uh, the war, when I was living in Cambodia, Runnerid was my landlord for my, my embassy apartment. And I used to go every month to his house, have a coffee with him and Princess Marie and pay the rent. So I did know him. So I wrote to him and said, look, um, I couldn't do anything to help the country while I was working with the embassy, but I find myself in a situation where I could be of service. I didn't tell him I'd got fired and was desperate. Anyway, so he invited me to join his small um, uh, cabinet uh, where I did his English correspondence, wrote speeches for him. I designed their security and their protocol manual and um, I, I, I was back in, in a foreign affairs in, my, in a way. And um, on the weekends, I would go to the orphanage where the 24 children uh, were that um, I'd first discovered and I'd play mum at the orphanage for um, the weekend. But during the week, it was solid work. But in 1997, uh, Hun Sen, who was the second prime minister, he mounted a, a military bloody coup against the royal family and ousted the whole royal family. And the prince and his wife had fled um, to Thailand and left the orphanage behind altogether. And there was no one to take care of them at all. They had um, no food, very little water, and things were desperate. So um, what happened after the three days of the really violent part of the coup, I was out at the orphanage you know, delivering you know, donated food and stuff. And a tank rolled through the gates with six soldiers on it, with AK-47s and rocket launchers. And they were pointing the guns at me and the children and saying, this land belongs to us. It's a, it's a military barracks. And the royal family took it from us and now we're here to take it back. You all have to go. And the kids were on their knees praying and begging them not to kill them. A lot of them were wetting their pants with fear. And in... Um, situations that are pretty urgent, my ability to talk Khmer becomes quite fluent. And I was shouting at them, and some of them were only like 21, 22 years old. And I was saying to them, does your mother know what you're doing here today? And it didn't have an effect at all. And as I was shouting at them, and they were pointing their guns at us, um, the head man put his gun down, and he leaned forward, and he looked me up and down really thoroughly. And then he nudged the soldier next to him and that soldier put his gun down and looked at me very thoroughly and then nudged the next one. And in, in the end, the, all six of them uh, put down their guns and got on the tank and left without a word. 
And the kids and I ran back to the dining room. We were laughing and we were crying and the older boys were laughing. And I'm saying, what's so funny? We all nearly got killed there. Why are you laughing? And they said, oh, mum, it's your hair that saved us. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, mum, in Cambodia, there's a very famous witch that when husbands are unfaithful, their wives go to this witch and she turns their husband's penises to the size of a pea and she's got bright red hair just like you. And the boys are convinced that the soldiers looked at me and thought I might have been that witch reincarnated and they didn't want to take their chances. So um, ever since then, I've always had my hair red. I'm as white as a sheep, but it's my security here to have this bright red hair. So that was the most dangerous um, part of my life um, in, in, in Cambodia. Um, but during that time, things were really desperate. I um, only had half a tank of gas and $80 in my bra. And I was taking foreign journalists out to the orphanage to show them what was happening and how we were being threatened. Um, and then it was a side story to the coup. And um, I was on CNN, NBC, BBC, all Australian television um, as a story. And I was calling Hun Sen a murderer, a thug and a gangster and no better than Pol Pot. Um, and then I found that after the coup and we were asked to leave the land by the by the you know people who owned it that i had nowhere to go except him to save us um and i managed to get a meeting with him i took the children with, with me who performed Khmer music and dance for him and i was a bit scared because i didn't really know i knew that he knew everything because he had people reporting on media all the time and i didn't know was i going to be arrested or what so when i took all the kids there i was a bit nervous but when he was watching the kids dance. I could see in his eyes, he was really into it and he was sincere. So after the dancing, the kids left and I had a, a private meeting with him. Before the meeting with him, I said to myself, Geraldine, you've got to have an impact on this guy. He's the only person that can help you. What can you do that's really Khmer that will impress him? So I thought I'll do what a Khmer does. So um, when I met him, I apologised for the bad things I'd said about him, which he knew about. And I kneeled and prayed with my hands up in front of my face on my knees and I was begging him. Now, for a foreigner to do that, Hun Sen knew that it was totally, totally out of our culture and our character to beg like that. Um, and it convinced him that I had the children's best interests at heart. So he was very moved by that and on that day, he gave us 10 hectares of land, 20 kilometres out of uh, the city, um, which he had cleared for us. Um, and he gave me Cambodian citizenship, which is a hard thing to get. Um, and things have been marvellous ever since um, with the relationship with the government. I couldn't um, ask for better conditions with the way they're treating us. I know uh, internationally he's not seen as a good guy, and I know why, and I don't disagree with that. But as far as Sunrise is concerned, he's been nothing but kind. And especially during these difficult times with COVID, he's donated a year's supply of rice to us. So um, I don't have any complaints for him yeah. about him. And, I mean, like listening to that story, Geraldine, like uh, it's, you know, it's I, I call it colourful 
respectfully because, you know, you've done pretty much everything. You've worked at the high-end corporate materialistic world. You've been, um, you know, in the, I guess, the diplomatic space. You're in the contribution space um, and fundraising and, and cause-driven uh, activities. And it's something that your passion and, and purpose is about, which is what, um, I guess, my whole one-shot movement thing is about following your passion and purpose. And it's so good to hear that you know you can draw parallels from your initial circumstance where you you know you were dealt um you know an unfair set of cards to be seen at the time um with not being able to have children which has led you to where you are right now and you know that that's your purpose it's so fascinating to hear people's stories and when they have been through the challenges and adversities and come out the other side they can often join the dots all the way back to that so um you said in there about a bit about the story and thinking on your feet with you know the witch's story the red hair you know how important um, is it to be able to think on your feet, to take action and just do what it takes to, to get what you want? Um, Cambodia is a very um, mystical, hypnotic, strange, difficult country to work in. It, um, things change every day and you've got to be able to move with the changes, like especially politically. There are, there are uh, military coups, there's um, uh, civil disobedience, there's all kinds of things that you've got to understand. And you've got to be, as a charity, and with kids in my care, I've got to be with the people that are in power. Otherwise, we'd be dead in the water. So um, I enjoy a healthy respect from the government and from the ministries that I work with, like social affairs and education and health. And they all see me as big mum. And um, I, I, I know that that red hair story has got around and that they all see me as someone to be respected. Um, so I... I enjoy that 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 kind of treatment here. Um, it's a mystical country, Craig. You, um, like in Australia, you know, you're going to get up in the morning, you're going to have a decent breakfast, you're going to go to work, work eight hours, come home, spend time with the family, go to the movies, go to a bar, have relaxing time on the weekend, and it's a pretty easy lifestyle. But in Cambodia, you don't know what it's going to hit you with every day. Um, and I love the complexities of this. You know, I wake up of a morning and I say to myself, okay, Cambodia, what do you got for me today? Hit me. And not very long ago, before lunch, a boy got bitten by a snake and had to be rushed to hospital. We found the cook cheating on the food bills and had to fire straight away and look for a new cook. Um, six kids were picked up by the police playing truant from school, brought to us. And we found out that one of the house mothers was having an affair and sleeping with the night guard. And this was all before lunch. So um, every day I know when I wake up, I'm going to laugh, I'm going to cry, I'm going to get frustrated, I'm going to get angry, um, I'm going to be puzzled, I'm going to be challenged. Um, almost every emotion I know I'm going to go through every day. And it makes me know that I'm alive. I've not been bored for one second since I've been in this country. 
And boredom's something, you know, to be really afraid of. And it's not something I experience here. I love every minute here. Yeah. And, and before we jumped on our interview, you know, I couldn't help but looking through your incredible um, accomplishments, which included being on 60 Minutes, included being on Australian Story, This Is Your Life, Four Corners, etc., etc. And I picked up in one of your um, interviews about, you know, some of the challenging people that come to you. And, and one of the, you know, I heard you saying in one of the interviews, you know, it's because of often destitution where people are are left because their only options is to starve, beg, steal, or prostitution. Um, it's, yeah, it's a difficult, probably, conversation to have sometimes, but I'd love to hear a few of your stories, good, positive, and challenging. That would be great. By far, the worst story I have to tell you is about a little baby, about eight months old, called Noodles. Um, the market's here. I'm well known in. They call me Big Mum. And I was at a local market buying silk to take back to sell at fundraising events in Australia. And my silk lady said, oh, big mum, she said, there's a little boy abandoned on a noodle stall here and we call him noodles. Maybe you could go and see him and take him back to sunrise. So she took me to the noodle stall that was run by a husband and wife and I looked at this lovely little healthy, fat, eight-month-old baby and I looked into his eyes and I said to him, Darling, I can't take you today. Um, I'm going to Australia. I won't be back for a couple of weeks. But when I come back, I'll come and get you and take you to Sunrise for a whole new life. So I went to Australia, did my fundraising, came back, and I'd been back about a week, and I thought, oh, i better go to the market and pick up noodles. So I went to the market, and if you could imagine how I felt when I got to the noodle stall and I looked down and I had, I could see that while I was away, people had come and harvested both his eyes for sale on the black market. Mm -hmm. The eyes. I lost it. I threw plates and glasses and screamed and yelled. And the husband and wife packed everything up and grabbed noodles and ran away. And I, I don't know to this day what happened to noodles. And I will never forgive myself for not taking him on that day for delaying going back and getting him. Um, I still dream about him and, uh, and hope that he forgives me, but that's one of my biggest failures. I didn't do the right thing by noodles. Mm. Wow. And, um, yeah, like I, I'm sure you see uh, lots of these challenging stories as well. Um, and I remember you telling a story, a bit more upbeat, positive story that, you know, some of the joyful ones that you've also seen along your time uh, with Sunrise as well. Um, there's a lovable boy who came to us when he was about nine. His name is Lai Tai. He's got cerebral palsy and his mother sold him in Thailand uh, to be a beggar. And it's just his legs that are crippled and he can't walk properly. Um, everything else is normal. He's bright. He can speak, hear, all of that, just crippled. And he was used as a beggar in Thailand until he was rounded up with other beggars and brought back to Thailand, uh, sorry, brought back to Cambodia and sent up to sunrise and everybody fell in love with this boy. His name's Lai Thai. And one day I was doing the profiles, my annual profiles to all the sponsors to give them an update on the Kid Day sponsor. And the profiles are pretty boring, you know, name 
favourite colour, favourite food, best friend, what I want to be when I grow up, you know, pretty standard things. And I wanted something a bit sexier and a bit more interesting to put um, on the profile. So I thought I'd ask each kid, if you had half an hour with Buddha, what would you ask him for? And the boys were saying cars and motorbikes and the girls were saying jewellery and a rich husband and a nice house, all the predictable things. And we got the little Aitai and he's sitting in his chair, swinging his legs, his deformed legs didn't even reach the ground. And I said to him, okay, Tai, what would you ask Buddha for? And he said to me, oh, mum, he said, Buddha's so busy and important. I don't really need anything. I, I, don't, I don't want to ask him for anything. And I said, darling, everybody else has asked for something. You have to do it because I have to tell the sponsors what, what you say. So in the end, he looked up in the sky and he closed his eyes and then he opened his eyes and he looked at me and he said, mum, there's one thing. I said, what's that? And he said, I would ask Buddha to make me a really, really good person in this life because in my last lifetime I must have done something really bad for my mum to love me, to not love me and throw me away and for me not to be able to run like the other children. So if Buddha makes me a really, really good person in this lifetime, maybe, just maybe in my next lifetime I'll have a mother who loves me and keeps me and I can run like the other children. And what do you say? What do you say? Anyway, Lai Tai is now in his early 20s. We got him vocational training as a chef. He's working in a five-star five star hotel and is financially independent and leading a really, really good life thanks to Sunrise. Mm. So that's Lai Tai's story. One thing you all should know is that when the kids reach 18, the ones who pass grade 12, um, we give them a scholarship, a free scholarship um, from Hun Sen, the Prime Minister, uh, to go to university. Um, and if they don't pass grade 12, they're given vocational training that Sunrises raises money for. And we've got kids at universities doing uh, medicine, law, engineering, architecture, hospitality, education, management, um, a whole range of things. I've got a qualified lawyer and um, uh, a civil engineer uh, working out there and having a wonderful life. And the kids doing vocational tra um, training are doing um, car repair, air conditioning maintenance, hospitality. For some of the gay kids, we get them beauty courses where they um, learn about makeup and hair and all of that. Um, and nobody leaves us at the age of 18 without either a university degree or vocational training. Wow, that's a, a massive impact that you... Um... <laughs> A lot of them have got really good jobs. Um, my gay boy, I've got to tell you about my gay, gay boy. His name is Petra. I could tell when he was about nine that he was gay and he was crying one day in the, in the schoolyard. And I said, what's the matter, darling? And he said, oh, mum, they're all calling me a poof. <laughs> in Khmer, right? It's, um, yeah. And I said, darling, you are a little poof. But it doesn't matter because the king is a poof too, <laughs> which everybody knows. And I said to him, you tell them when they tease you, they're teasing the king also. So he went off really happy with that. <laughs> he uh, got up to uh, 16 and wasn't going anywhere with his studies. It wasn't, it wasn't that he wasn't bright, he just wasn't interested. So we got him a training course in beauty where he learned makeup, hair, nails, massage, all of that. And, um, and then he got a job. And after he'd been working about six months, I met him in town for lunch and I said, what are you doing? 
And he said, well, mum, he said, I've got a job with the biggest TV station. He said, I do all the soaps. Uh, I travel all around the country and, uh, and do the makeup of the most beautiful, beautiful Cambodian actresses. And he said, I get my travel, my rent, my electricity, my food, everything paid for, and I get $800 a month, which is three times more than what the other kids are getting. And then he leaned forward with a cheeky grin and he said, I didn't need biology or uh, literature for that. <laughs> so he's actually earning more money than my qualified uh, civil engineer. There's hope for everybody at Sunrise. Yeah. And, yeah, look, I mean, that's that's a real powerful thing that you're doing. You know, there's, there's one thing about, you know, looking after people, but then there's um, another thing when people can develop and grow to be able to look after their self, and that's, um, you know, really special. Um, and, and, and just when we were talking before, your media and your media career has really driven fundraising for you and is really important and that's, you know, um, that's been a big part of you being able to raise money for this and COVID-19 has really impacted you as well. Do you want to share a bit about that? Uh, my relationship with the media started in, 1970, in the 1997 during the coup Channel 9, Channel 2, Channel 10, everybody was up here. And I met them all and uh, in the bar here where the foreign correspondents met. It was standing room only, so I, I re really was adopted a bit by the, the Australian crews. And that's where I made my really powerful contacts. And they said to me, Geraldine, whenever you're in Australia, because they'd all been out to the orphanage and seen what the problems were. And they said, whenever you come to Australia, let us know and we'll see if we can get you some coverage, which is what's been happening since 1997. Um, one of our um, biggest um, media personalities is Ray, Ray Martin, who did a story on 60 Minutes and has become a sponsor and a real fan of the kids. Um, and without the media, I wouldn't be able to raise half the amount of money that I've been able to raise. It's such a powerful tool if they like you. So I've just got to make sure they keep on liking me. Yeah. And just recently with COVID, um, I was on my last legs. I had three months' money. I was looking at having to close everything down. I had to close one centre in Siem Reap. Um, and I was looking at complete closure with also um, me not having a, a job or a salary uh, and probably reduced to having to live with my driver and his wife because um, I wouldn't have a salary. Mm. And I was on my last legs. I was desperate. And I told a girlfriend about all of this and she rang a journalist who worked for a current affair and this journalist called me and said look we'd like to do a Skype session now it'll go to air tomorrow night and I said well give me a couple of minutes to put on my face so I went off and clouded myself off and came back and she um, did the Skype interview and it went to air the next night at seven o'clock on a current affair by eight o'clock it was over and by nine o'clock my website crashed because there were so many people trying to donate money. It was unbelievable. Mm. And that was um, going on more than three weeks now, three and a half weeks. And wait for it, that a current affair program has raised $810,000 for the kids. Can you believe wow. that? It's enough money for me to run everything um, fully for a year. Um, but this time next year, I'm going to be in the same situation because all my fundraising relies on my travel and my public speaking. I'm the only one doing fundraising. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and at the moment, I can't travel and I can't do public speaking. So uh, I'm going to have to be really, really careful with this money because I don't know where the next year's money is going to come from. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's where we are at the moment. But can you believe it? 810,000 from Australian people. Wow. And I was blown away. Mm. And the people in the office were saying to me, oh, it's madness in here, Geraldine, because every time PayPal, PayPal comes on, it goes bing, 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 bing. You said, we can't hear for ourselves because PayPal is banging away all the time. And I said, well, that's a lovely thing to be complaining of. <laughs> that's right. Um, and and we, we were talking earlier, um, you know, you mentioned you're 75 and still, you know, you're the sole person to raise the funds you know and you you know um said you're, you're starting to slow down like um you know it's, yeah yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be 75 on the 10th of june which is not too far away i am starting to feel um my age like anyone would at 75 um i'm working on a succession plan but it's, it's not finalized yet uh, but but i do need someone to fundraise for me um, after I'm pushing up daisies and um, like the universe always comes to my aid at the last second it will probably do the same again so I'm relying on the universe to come to my aid as far as succession planning is but if there's any millionaires out there listening and you've got a million dollars to give away every year think of some of those because that's about how much I need yeah. and that's for um, residential kids that are getting food clothing medical and dental care they go to the government school, they come back to us and get English and computers, music, dance, art and sport. Um, we even help them when they get married with the donation towards their wedding reception. So it's a mum. You don't stop being a mum. Mm. Um, so it, it costs about a million a year for the residential kids. We've got disabled kids too. But we also so give an education to kids in the community uh, around where I live. It's a farming area and the parents are in the fields all day, so they keep their older primary age school kids home to look after the little ears. So nobody gets an education. So what we did, we started up a kindergarten. We take all the little kids, which means that the village kids of primary school age can go to school. So everybody's getting an education now, and it's just changed the village life altogether. So we've got a couple of hundred of them that come here and do all the other kids that the residential kids do. And we do community work in that village too and help them with a lot of their problems. So it's not just the residential kids that Sunrise takes care of, it's hundreds of community kids and their families. Mm. So if you want to give, this is a good place to do it. Everything's tax deductible too, yeah. And yeah. um, we're also recognised in the US, the UK and Hong Kong for people that pay tax there, they can also get their tax breaks. Yeah. So we're pretty respected, you know, in all these countries. Wow. And um, I, I guess uh, I sort of understand, uh, my question was going to be where did, what the next three years you're in handover, you're in fundraising mode and needing people for fundraising. So yeah. where um, in wrapping up, uh, you, you did share a really powerful message to me. Yes, yes. Well, as far as fundraising concerned, is there anybody out there that's got time on their hands? I'm looking at people to do crowdfunding uh, or GoFundMe. If anyone's interested, they can email me and I can give them a list of um, fundraising needs that we uh, put out there, like education, health, um, all that kind of thing, that if they wanted to do 
GoFundMe and crowdfunding, like our rice for the year, our food, our, our um, house mother's salaries, our computers and English teachers' salaries. There's a whole range of things that people might be interested in raising money for. Mm. So that's part of um, uh, another way I'm now wanting to do fundraising. But when um, I go to Australia, I say to the kids, I'm going to be talking to people that I want to give money to you. So have you got a message for them? For them? October 12 had a little brainstorm session and they came back with a piece of paper and they said, here's what we want you to say to the people in Australia. And the list said that Sunrise Kids wished all of them long life, health, strength, wisdom, and what we all need in the world most, peace. And I looked at the list and I said to the kids, hey kids, wealth's not on there. One of the teenage boys rolled his eyes and stood up and he said, Mom, if you've got long life or strength, you're already rich. You should know that. And I just love how the kids teach me something every day. It's not me teaching them, they're teaching me every day. I can't tell you how they enrich my life. I wouldn't change my life for anybody. Um, I'm just loving what I do. Don't want to stop. Yeah. And uh, on that note, um, just if you can let us know the website um, name, um, I'll certainly get it out there myself. But uh, Okay. It's, um, it's sunrisecambodia.org.au. Right. And no. I'm really happy for people to email me. I love getting email from people who might have all, all sorts of questions. Um, and my email address is geraldine.cox at sunrisecambodia.org.kh. Right. Don't ask about adoptions because the Australian government doesn't have an arrangement with the Cambodian government, so I can't get involved in adoptions. Okay. So on that note, I really appreciate you taking the time to jump on because this podcast and show is about people finding their why, people find their passion and purpose, yeah. people striving to follow their dreams and, you know, your journey is, you know, right up there with one of the, the most fascinating and amazing stories I've had to date, um, full of inspiration, full of wisdom, living life to the fullest, following your passions, you, you know, you've done it all. And um, One last thing I wanted to say to the people listening, don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. Mm. I was protected by my family, by the government, by the corporate world. And it wasn't until I came to Cambodia and I was completely out of my comfort zone that I found out who I am and what I can achieve. Yeah. Once again, from the kids, the kids and I wish you all long life, health, strength, wisdom and peace. And thanks for listening to me. No worries. Well, thank you very much. Wow, what an amazing story. So much to unpackage there. A journey she's done pretty much everything, travelled the world, lived in different countries, experienced so many amazing um, things in life. And as you can see, the amazing work she's doing there with Sunrise Cambodia. And if you are someone that 
is looking for a great cause to contribute to, make sure that you certainly reach out to Geraldine and look into what you can do there. If you like this week's episode, please support it by giving us feedback, comments, share it with your friends, family, contacts across social media. It's really important to be able to get the great guests like Geraldine Cox to inspire people to live life with passion and purpose. If you haven't got your copy of the book, you've got one shot, go across to www.craigschultz.com. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Make sure you go out there and live life with passion and purpose. Today, we're with the amazing Geraldine Cox. Till next time, we will see you soon.